Hey, Keystoneers. Welcome back to Keystone State of Mind. It's me, Steph, your tour guide to the dark side of Pennsylvania. I have a really cool announcement for you guys this week. KSOM merch is now available. If you go to the website, ksomthepod.com, click on the merch tab, and then there's a little button you can click in there that'll take you to my merch site that is being managed by Create Graphic Design. A good friend of mine, wonderful designer. She also does my website. And there you can find hoodies and t-shirts, tank tops, can koozies, little beer cooler, uh, insulated lunch bag, all kinds of cool stuff. So go check it out. I have a big shout out this week for Keystoner Christian, who reached out to me on Facebook to tell me how much he likes the show and to give me a topic suggestion. So thank you so much, Christian. Also, big thank yous to Original Orion Pax and Ike McIke for leaving the show a five-star rating and positive review on Apple Podcasts this week. I'm getting lots of great feedback and listenership is growing. This just gets more exciting every week. So I love you guys. Thanks so much. So I recently started calling out to listeners in certain cities to reach out and tell me about yourself, tell me about your town, tell me what you like about the show or what you know about the Keystone State or anything you want to tell me. So this week I am calling out to Puyallup, Washington. Hopefully I'm saying that right. If I messed up the pronunciation, feel free to tell me about it. So anybody from Puyallup, Washington, reach out. Tell me about yourself, your town, whatever you want to tell me. I want to hear from you. I also just want to give a little update on the missing persons case that I mentioned last week. 22-year-old Heidi Lutz is still missing. Fire departments and volunteers from around the Bradford County area have been continuing to search for her to no avail. So I just want to keep her name out there so all of us here in Bradford County can keep that in the back of our minds as we're going about our daily business. Just a reminder from last week, Heidi was last seen in Terry Township on Friday, April 24th at about 10.10 p.m. She was last seen wearing a blue sweatshirt with a white pit bull insignia on the front, black and gray plaid pajama pants, a black tunic style shirt, and light gray sneakers with no socks. She's approximately five foot four inches tall and weighs 135 pounds. She has dirty blonde to light brown hair, which is unkempt and approximately shoulder length. According to an article in the Rocket Courier, Lutz is known to be mentally disabled. There is now a cash reward, although I haven't been able to identify exactly how much it is. The last I saw it was $3,000, but I do believe it's gone up since then. And anyone who has information on her whereabouts could be 
entitled to that reward. So if you have any information about Heidi, please call the Pennsylvania State Police in Bradford County at 570-265-2186, or you can just call 911. I'm going to continue following Heidi's case closely, although I have seen coverage in the media has dropped off quite a bit in the last few days. So I just want to do my part to keep it out there. Let's bring Heidi home. Hopefully she's safe. I have to put out a content warning for today's episode because it does involve murder and violence against a child. And there are some parts that are going to be a little graphic. So I just want to let you know up front, if that topic is something you don't want to hear, please skip this week's show. And of course, I got to get into a Keystone state of mind. As always, I'll be enjoying an ice cold can of Keystone Light while I tell you today's story. And it's a pretty sad one. So... A nice cold beer will make it a little more palatable. On February 25th, 1957, a report came in to the Philadelphia Police Department that a body had been spotted in an illegal dumping ground in the Fox Chase area of Philadelphia. When officers Elmer Palmer and Sam Weinstein arrived on the scene, they found the body of a small child in a cardboard box. The boy was naked and wrapped in a blanket. There were noticeable bruises around his face and his hair had been crudely cut. Before I tell you more about the boy and his injuries, I want to tell you a little bit about where and how he was found. In the 50s, the Fox Chase area of Philadelphia was quite rural for being part of a large city. The boy's body was found in the woods off Susquehanna Road. At the time, there were no houses on Susquehanna Road. The only building on that road was the Good Shepherd School for Wayward Girls. And this was run by nuns from the Good Shepherd Church. Because it was such a desolate area, many people used it as an illegal dumping ground. There was a lot of trash and old furniture and toilets and broken appliances and things like that just dumped on the side of the road. Susquehanna Road did, however, connect to more populated streets, so it was traveled quite a bit. The body was discovered by a young man named Frederick Benosis, and I really had to dig to find this kid's name because most places it's either just redacted entirely or they use an alias of some sort. And I'm not sure why. That actually happens quite a bit in this story. Most people's real names are completely kept out. Frederick Benosis was in his mid-20s and he was a junior at LaSalle College. His story of how he came across this body is ridiculous, if you ask me. Here's what this weirdo told police. He was driving down the road and he saw a bunny. 
and he wanted to chase it because he liked chasing bunnies. One of his hobbies was to chase bunnies and see how close he could get to them before they ran away. Dude's in his mid-20s. He's not fucking seven years old. Who is buying this story? And he's a junior in college. It's not like he's challenged in some way. Like, what? What what dude in his mid-20s chases bunnies for fun? You fucking dummy. He also said that he'd done the same thing earlier, driving down the road, stops his car to chase a bunny. And when he did, he came across two small animal traps and he used a stick to engage these traps so they would not catch an animal. And he also wanted to check and make sure that those traps were still not reset because he's so concerned about these bunnies. I'm blown away by this. I I don't understand how any police officer did not be like, "Are, are you fucking insane right now? But when Frederick Benosis first came across the body of the child, he didn't report it to the police. He waited a day before he called police about it. And here's the reason why. Because he'd been caught in those woods before, peeping at the girls in the wayward girls school and been told by police to stay the fuck out of there, you fucking creep. So he was afraid to get in trouble for being in the woods again. I'm sure not chasing bunnies, but actually peeping at the teenage girls. So he'd found the body the day before, didn't report it. But the next morning, he heard a report on the radio that there was a missing child from New Jersey, which is just over the river from Philadelphia. And he started feeling really guilty, like, I need to tell someone. So he spoke to his brother, who was a priest, and his brother urged him to go to police, which he did. Authorities were quickly able to determine that the boy in the box was not the missing child from New Jersey because that child was a girl. So they were they knew right away that that's not the same kid, but at least now they've gotten the report of the body and they can begin their investigation. The first thing that police did was knock on doors and canvass the area, try to find anyone who witnessed anything strange going on in the last few days or whatever. This is when they found out that Frederick Benosis was not the first person to come across this body. At the home of a Polish-American family, police spoke to an 18-year-old boy who was a senior in high school who told them a pretty disconcerting story. This young man, whose name has been kept out of any records I could find, told police that a few days earlier, he had been in the woods checking his muskrat traps. So this is the guy who set the traps that Frederick Benosis didn't want to catch his precious bunnies. So he's in the woods checking his muskrat traps and he came across the boy in the box. He was distraught and sickened by this discovery, but he did not go to police for two reasons. One, trapping is illegal, so he didn't want to get in trouble for that. And two, 
his family had emigrated from Poland like 10 years earlier. And Eastern Europe was in quite a bit of turmoil, obviously, in the 40s. His family had grown up in a time where they just really could not trust the government or authorities. And his parents were deathly afraid of the police. So he just did not want to bring police to his home. Fair enough, I suppose. But when the police did come to his home and ask him, he told them the truth. So based on this kid's statement, police knew that the boy in the box had been there since at least February 22nd. So that was three days before the investigation began. At the autopsy, the medical examiner found that the child was four to six years old. And that was based on the fact that he had a full set of baby teeth and none of his adult teeth had come in yet. He was three and a half feet tall with blue eyes and fair skin. He had sandy brown hair that had been crudely cut and tufts of this cut hair were still stuck to his body. So his hair had been cut either right before or right after his death. They also determined that he had been wet at the time of his death because his hands and feet showed signs of the washerwoman effect, which is where your fingers and toes wrinkle up from being in water for so long. Also, the hair was stuck to him as if it had dried on him. It, it fell on him when it was wet and then dried there. The medical examiner also found that he was extremely malnourished. He only weighed 30 pounds, so he was very much underweight for his age and height. There was no food in the child's stomach, and there was a brown liquid that coated his throat and his esophagus that the medical examiner determined could possibly be vomit. The cause of death was ruled to be blunt force trauma to the head, and the manner of death was ruled to be homicide. The boy's body also had some distinguishing features. He had three surgical scars, one on the chest, the ankle, and the groin. The scar on his ankle was an obvious sign that the boy had had a transfusion or an infusion, like a blood transfusion. And I know what these scars look like because I knew a woman who had a blood transfusion in the 50s when she was young. And it's like a vertical scar that runs right along the blood vessel right there, the vein. So this is obvious to a medical professional that this boy had had a blood transfusion at some point in his life. Another strange thing that was found at the autopsy was that the boy's left eye shone yellow under UV light. So that told the medical examiner that he had some kind of eye disease that was being treated by an ophthalmologist. With all of this information gained at the autopsy, police were confident that they would be able to find out this boy's identity and the identity of his killer. 
right away, the investigators started searching through any missing child records that might fit the boy's description, and they came up with nothing. So then they started questioning doctors and hospitals and any medical facilities that might have done these treatments on the child. No doctor or hospital in the entire Philadelphia area recognized the boy in the box. This was a complete shock to police. They thought for sure they would have this case wrapped up in no time. There were so many clues. When all of the medical leads fell through, the next step was to circulate a photo of the child. And this was not an artist rendering. They actually took photos of three different angles of the child's face and distributed tens of thousands of copies. They were posted in all businesses throughout the Philadelphia area, and the gas and electric companies also put a copy of these photos in everyone's bill each month. So every time they opened their bill, they saw the photo of this kid in hopes that someone would recognize him. Authorities also actually allowed the public to view the child's body in the morgue. And people from 10 different states who had missing children showed up to see if that was their boy and no one could identify him. The medical examiner actually even dressed him in clothes and sat him up in different positions to take different pictures so it didn't just look like a boy on a slab, it looked like an actual child. And still, no leads came from that. In the meantime, investigators had been combing over the area where the body was found, and there were many clues there as well. First was the box that the boy was found in. When the child was found, the cardboard box was dry inside, and it had been a rainy, cold, wet time. It's February in Pennsylvania. Also, the cardboard hadn't started to shrivel or tear or wear away. So they knew that the box and the boy had not been there very long before they found it. The cold February weather made it difficult for the medical examiner to determine an accurate time of death based on the child's body. But because the box was in such good shape and still intact, that told the police that it couldn't have been there for more than a few days. The box itself also held other clues. It had a serial number on it. And that serial number led back to an item sold by JCPenney stores. This was a baby's bassinet, a white wicker baby bassinet. Police confirmed that 12 of these bassinets had been shipped to a JCPenney store in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, which is near Philadelphia. The JCPenney store in the 50s was a cash-only operation, so there was no record of any of the people that bought the bassinets. Authorities then turned to the media and asked the public 
If you have bought any of these white bassinets from JCPenney, please come forward and talk to us. And people did. They called police to say, yes, I bought a bassinet and I put the box out for trash removal or I still have the box and I'm storing shit in it in my attic or whatever. 11 people came forward. The 12th buyer was never identified. The next clue was the blanket that the child had been found wrapped in. For some reason, the blanket was cut in two pieces. It was a green and brown diamond plaid design. The blanket was sent to the Philadelphia Textile Institute for examination. It was found that the blanket was either made in Quebec, Canada or in North Carolina. But thousands of these blankets had been made and shipped all over the world. So this lead also led nowhere. Investigators then had one last clue to analyze. It was found 15 feet from the boy's body. It was a blue Ivy League style hat, size seven and one eighth with a leather strap to go under the chin. The tag led police to the Bald Eagle Hat and Cap Company. This was owned by milliner Hannah Robbins. And just a little fun fact some trivia for you. A hat maker is called a milliner. Some definitions restrict a milliner to only making women's hats. But in the book that I referenced for this episode, they referred to Hannah Robbins as a milliner, and she also made men's hats. This book was called The Boy in the Box, The Unsolved Case of America's Unknown Child by David Stout. And it was a great read. A lot of the books that I read are pretty boring. You know, they're nonfiction. They're just all facts. But this was a great book. I enjoyed it from start to finish, and there was so much information in this book that I could not have gotten my hands on from any other source. So shout out to David Stout for an amazing reference for my episode this week. But anyways, when investigators spoke to Hannah Robbins, she knew exactly who bought this hat, although she didn't know his name. She knew because... She was only able to make a few hats out of this blue corduroy. It was left over from a ream that she had used for something else. And as a small business owner, she used every bit of fabric that she had. Nothing went to waste. And this particular hat was the only one that the buyer had requested a leather chin strap to be put on. She gave the police a description of a short, stout, jolly fella who bought the hat, but he was just a normal guy with dark hair, nothing real distinguishing about him. And she had never seen him before or since. And really, police didn't know if this hat had anything to do with the identity of the killer. Maybe somebody dropped it while they were in there illegally dumping their trash. 
or illegally trapping animals or gawking at the teenage girls at the wayward girls home. Apparently people did a lot of creepy shit in those woods. So they couldn't be sure that this had anything to do with the murder of the boy in the box. By now, the Philadelphia Police Department had exhausted every lead they had. Nothing had come of any of the clues they found, and they began positing theories of what could have happened. Maybe a parent had just lost control and killed their child in a fit of rage, which was why they did not report to police that their kid was missing. Based on the results of the autopsy, the child was sick in some way. Maybe his blunt force trauma was accidental because of his condition, and the parents just didn't want to be blamed. The medical examiner that did the autopsy of this child, his name was Remington Bristow, and the case of the boy in the box began to consume his life. He actually considered the idea that the boy had been raised as a girl. And that's why no one recognized him. So he had an artist rendering done of the child's face with long hair and in a dress and circulated that image. But still, no one recognized him. This, of course, was a wild theory and a long shot, but Remington Bristow was grasping at straws. He wanted to find the identity of this boy so bad. And at some point, not even just for the medical examiner, but for the investigators and the police involved, it wasn't even about finding the murderer. It was about giving this child a name and finding out who he was. And it became a running theme that this child was loved more in death than he had been in life by the investigators and by the community. The child wasn't buried until July of that year. They kept him in the morgue for five months, trying anything they could think of to identify him. And the last thing that was done before he was buried was to make a mold, a death mask of his face. The medical examiner, Remington Bristow, carried this death mask in his briefcase for the rest of his life. The boy in the box became a national headline, and people from all over the country called in leads. Police followed up on anything credible that came in. These tips led investigators to Colorado, where they found a family of two parents and eight children. Four of these children had been rejected by their mother. The mother just hated half of her children from the day they were born. She starved them and they were eating out of neighbor's trash cans. And one of them actually died, 
but none of them were the boy in the box. Investigators followed a lead to Louisiana, where a couple had followed circuses and carnivals around the country looking for work. They lived out of their car and they had like 10 kids and six of them died of malnutrition and starvation. The couple admitted to police where they had buried all these kids and none of them were the boy in the box. Early on, a tip came in that there was this foster family in the Philadelphia area who were not the best foster parent. Police did investigate this family, and although the foster children were not super well taken care of, they were all accounted for. But there was some question that the family's biological daughter, who was an older teenager, may have had a child out of wedlock that they wanted to hide. And maybe that was the boy in the box. But that was never proven. It was kind of only just a thought or a rumor or a theory. Over the years, the investigators came across so many heartbreaking, awful stories just like this. But none of them were ever the boy in the box. But going back to the early days of the investigation, once this story was released through the press to the public, a credible lead did come in. And it came from a man only known as the Good Samaritan. He reported to police that he had been driving down Susquehanna Road one day around mid-February. He didn't know exactly which day. He came across a car parked on the side of the road with the trunk open. There was a woman and what he believed to be a young boy standing at the back of the car. He stopped to ask if they needed help. And the woman quickly shooed him away and said, no, we do not need help. The Good Samaritan initially thought that maybe she was just dumping some trash and didn't want to be caught. And then he thought maybe they did have car trouble, but she wasn't about to invite a strange man to help her. And he quickly forgot the incident until the news reports came out of the child found in the woods. Put a pin in that because we'll come back to that in a minute. The police followed up on every lead. The FBI was involved at one point and they couldn't make any headway. The case remained open and the original investigators as well as the medical examiner held onto this case for their entire lives. The boy was originally buried in a potter's field, but later the community came together and bought him a plot in the Ivy Hill Cemetery in the Cedarbrook neighborhood of Philadelphia with a headstone that reads, America's Unknown Child. And that is where he lays to this day. The story, however, does not end there. In 2002, the detectives 
that are still in charge of this case got a call from a psychiatrist in Cincinnati. He told them that one of his patients, a woman only known as Mary, had a story to tell them about the boy in the box. And I have to warn you, this story of Mary's that I'm about to tell is horrific. In a nutshell, this is what Mary told police. She was an only child. Her mother was a librarian and her father was a teacher. All outward appearances would say that this family was normal and happy. But inside her home, it was sick and twisted. Her father sexually abused her regularly. And her mother didn't only turn a blind eye, but would also participate and encourage this behavior. Mary often went hungry, even though her family was very much able financially to provide for her. There was no loving environment. It was cold and distant. Mary's parents both had very twisted sexual desires. Her father's desire was for Mary herself, but her mother desired a young boy who was pure for her own sexual fantasies. Mary remembered a time when she was 13 years old in 1955. She rode with her mother to an area that she wasn't familiar with, but was pretty sure it was still in Philadelphia. She sat in the car as her mother walked up to the door and rang the doorbell of this home. When the door opened, her mother was handed a baby and her mother then handed the woman at the door an envelope. Mary held the baby in the car on the way home and she couldn't recall exactly, but somehow they named this baby Jonathan. Jonathan would, for the next two years, live in the basement of her parents' house in an old coal bin what had been a coal bin in this home. Mary rarely saw the child. Her mother would go down and take him food and she would be down there for a little while sometimes. And Mary could only imagine what was being done. She felt horrible for the child and thought about him constantly. She says she didn't have any friends in school to talk to, and that certainly wasn't her only secret that she kept. She remembered an evening in February of 1957 when she was 15. Baby Jonathan had been there for two years. Her mother had fed him baked beans that night out of a dog food bowl in the basement, and he vomited and this enraged Mary's mother. 
She drug him up the basement stairs and threw him in a scalding hot bath where, of course, he cried. And then Mary listened at the door while her mother mercilessly beat this child to death. Mary spent a sleepless night in her bed that night. And in the morning, her mother awoke her to ride along to dump Jonathan's body on a deserted stretch of road in a patch of woods. Just as they parked and opened the trunk, a car came by and stopped and asked if they needed help. Her mother quickly shooed this good Samaritan away and told them they were fine. Now we're going back to the pin that we put in a little while ago. Does that sound familiar? Once the car drove away, Mary's mother carried Jonathan wrapped in a blanket into the woods. And there she found a cardboard box and put Jonathan in it and they left. All of the pieces of Mary's story seemed to fit. She told investigators that her mother had never cut Jonathan's hair until right before they dumped his body. She also said that her mother ordered her to clip Jonathan's fingernails and toenails. And the autopsy report of the boy in the box showed that his nails had been recently trimmed. And then, of course, there's the report of the Good Samaritan that fit perfectly with Mary's story. But there are also some discrepancies between the boy in the box and Mary's story. The boy in the box was four to six years old when he died. Jonathan had supposedly been held at Mary's house for two years. So that would have meant he was between two and four years old when Mary's mother bought him, basically, because we can assume that that envelope that Mary's mother handed over held money, right? So if Jonathan is the boy in the box, he would have been between two and four years old when Mary's mother bought him. So it would have to have been before that, that he had any of these medical procedures that were evident on the body. The treatment for the left eye, the blood transfusion based on the scar on the ankle, and the other surgical scars that were on him. So this family that supposedly sold this boy, why would they go through all the trouble to get him medical treatment if they were just going to get rid of him? We also have to keep in mind that Mary's story did not reach investigators until 2002. And the facts and details of this case had been widely publicized since 1957. That's 45 years after this incident supposedly occurred. 
Now, according to Mary's psychiatrist, she had been seeing him for 13 years. She had been telling him the same story for all this time. And her keeping it bottled up inside, it was what led her to therapy to begin with. So based on this timeline, Mary began therapy in 1989. That is 32 years after the incident occurred, allegedly. Now in the 80s and 90s, psychiatrists were dabbling in a untested method of repressed memory retrieval. And that led to a lot of false memories being brought up. During what's known as the satanic panic of the 90s, many people were falsely accused, convicted, and imprisoned of crimes they did not commit based on psychiatrists using this repressed memory retrieval method to come up with things that never happened with their patients. And that is instantly what I think of when I hear Mary's story. Someday I'll have to do an episode on the satanic panic and that whole nonsense. But if you know what I'm talking about, you can see how this very easily could be a false memory that was fed to Mary inadvertently by her psychiatrist. I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but there are parts of Mary's story that fit and there are parts that are questionable. Three detectives from the Philadelphia PD interviewed Mary and listened to her story. Two of them believed that this was the story of the boy in the box. But one of these investigators was unconvinced. There were discrepancies. He couldn't be sure. There was no one to test for DNA. There was no way to check. There was no way to verify. And even if it was true, the perpetrators were dead. Mary's parents had both died. There was no one to ask. There was no one to answer for this. Taken at face value, Mary's story does ring true, but we can never know for sure. And I hate to even bring up this possibility, but if Mary's story is true and Jonathan wasn't the boy in the box, is there another child that has never been found? In 2008, the VDOC Society picked up the boy in the box case. The VDOC Society is a group of retired detectives and investigators from around the world that meet up a couple of times a year and look at unsolved cold cases and try to solve them in their spare time. It's a nonprofit organization and they have made progress in many cases. So we can only hope that the boy in the box, America's unknown child, will one day be identified. Okay, Keystoners, I know that was a rough one. 
That was hard for me to read about and research. I've heard this story told many times, but once I really dug into it, it kind of hurt my soul. But we're going to end this on a high note because you guys are never going to believe this. But while I was recording this episode, I got the alert that Heidi Lutz was found alive and safe. I don't have all the specifics yet. This is breaking news. But I am so happy to report that Heidi is home. I'll keep you guys updated as I get more information. So let's not dump trash on the side of the road. Let's not set muskrat traps. Let's not chase bunnies and look at young girls in a wayward girl's home. But what we should do is stay keystoned, my friends.